Well, friends, we're, we're coming upon the wedding season, at least in our society, uh, the spring, the early summer when we have weddings. And not so with the Amish, right? The Amish have their weddings. Is it still Tuesdays and Thursdays, October and, and November, right? I say to some of the ex-Amish among us, they do that because it's the end of the harvest and it's just a tradition. We've always done it this way. And so that's when their weddings are. But for much of the society, weddings come when the weather begins to break. Weddings are a time of reflection for us, aren't they? They're a time of self-reflection and self-evaluation. As you look upon that couple with their, they're in the flush of their uh, newfound affection for one another and infatuation with one another, hopefully undergirded by a true love for one another, if the marriage is going to last. When you're at a wedding, you're made to reflect upon your own marriage, aren't you? How are we doing as a couple? Has our affection for one another deepened or has it grown kind of cold and have we become distant? As the sermon is preached, usually something about marriage, you're asked, made to ask, as a husband, have I been a loving leader to my wife? As a wife, have I been a respectful helper to my husband? So weddings are times of self-reflection and self-evaluation. So are funerals. And of late, it seems that death has drawn nearer to us than usual as a church family. And it appears that it may be nearer yet again in the case of some loved ones of some of our people. But because those who have died or are facing death are believers and are in the Lord, not only has death drawn near, is death drawing near to us, but, but heaven is drawing near to us. Thoughts of heaven are drawing near to us more than usual. And so because of that, I've seen fit to take a break from our studying through the gospel of Mark, where we're almost finished. We're in chapter 15 and bring a few messages on the subject of heaven as a comfort to those who have lost loved ones and as a reminder to us of what our hope is and what our destiny is. So far, we've considered our relationships in heaven. Yes, you will see your loved ones in heaven again. There will be a wonderful reconciliation in heaven. And then to coincide with Easter Sunday, we talked about the resurrection that will take us from heaven to the new heavens and the new earth. And then last week, I spoke to you about our rest in heaven, our eternal rest in heaven. Those who don't know Christ have no rest, the Bible says, but those who are in Christ, believers in Jesus, rest from their labors. And we talked about that. This morning, I want to talk about our rewards in heaven, our rewards in heaven. Now, there are probably a lot of different ideas about rewards in heaven. For those who are not believers, if they ever think about heaven at all, for them, the rewards in heaven would probably be an extension and expansion of the things they enjoy on earth, right? No thoughts of God, no thoughts of Jesus for them. They don't know God. They don't love Jesus. And so heaven will be just a continuation of hunting or fishing or golf or whatever they enjoy on the earth. Um. And, you know, we live in this postmodern age where people think that they can create reality. Like I said, if a person thinks he's a, a man, even though he, she's a woman, they think it's reality. Postmodernism says you can make your own reality. Well, we've got news for our world. You can't. And you can't make heaven to be what you want it to be. Heaven is what God has made it to be. And so when we want to find out about heaven and particularly the rewards in heaven, we need to turn to what God says. And so we turn to his word. 
All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So we're going to turn to the word of God and try to understand what does it say about rewards in heaven? The first thing is the equality of the reward of heaven. Now, let me explain. Before we speak of rewards in heaven, we're going to speak about heaven as a reward in itself. The great reward for the believer consistently and repeatedly throughout the Bible, our great hope, our expectation, our anticipation is eternal life, living forever with God and with his son Jesus, first in heaven and then eventually in a new heavens and new earth. Heaven itself is the reward. And the Bible could not be more clear about the fact that heaven is not something we earn or deserve. Anyone who reaches heaven does so not as a result of anything they've done, but on the basis of the free, unmerited mercy and grace of God. And let me remind you of some of the classic texts of the New Testament that teach us this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Galatians 2.16, listen to Paul's repetition here to the Galatians. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified or made right with God by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He couldn't be more clear. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And the well-known verse, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the heart of the gospel is that people enter heaven not because of their own good works, but because of the good work of another, even Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has an intrinsic right to heaven. That's his rightful place. He came from heaven. He's going back to heaven because as God, the second person of the Trinity, that's his dwelling place. And so in his prayer before he went back to heaven, he prays this in John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Father, I was in heaven in glory before I came. Now take me back there because that's my rightful place. Heaven is Jesus' rightful place. Heaven is not a reward for Jesus. That's where he belongs. But in another sense, in his role as mediator, heaven was given to Jesus as a reward, not for himself, but for his people. By being willing to become a man-child, live a perfect life, offer himself up as a sacrifice upon the cross. God the Father promised to reward God the Son by giving him a people who were redeemed and a people who would go to heaven. Prophetically, Isaiah 53, 11 says, speaking of Jesus, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, Jesus, will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. By the anguish that Jesus endured in his suffering on the cross, he will be satisfied because the result of his suffering is he'll have a redeemed people. 
when a mother goes through labor and she suffers those terrible labor pains. The reward, hopefully, is a baby. At the end, there's a reward. Well, Jesus suffered. And the reward is a people purchased by his blood. Further, Jesus prays in John 17, this prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus had a right to heaven because that's his rightful place. But as mediator, he's given heaven as a reward, not to himself, but he's given heaven as a reward for his people. By his death, he purchased a people, he redeemed a people, and by his death, he purchased their right to go to heaven. And so heaven is only an indirect reward to the believer. It's a direct reward to Jesus. So that means that there's a fundamental and essential equality among all believers who receive the reward of heaven. Christ has earned heaven equally for all of us. Is any believer more in Christ than any other? No. Is any more justified than any other? Is any Christian more destined for heaven and glory than any other? No. Is any believer less condemned than any other? Will any believer be any more in heaven than any other? No. There's this basic equality based on the fact that Jesus purchased the same heaven for all believers. And so when it comes to the reward of heaven, there's equality. None of us is going to a different heaven. We're all going to the same heaven. There's a parable Jesus told that illustrates this, and I'm not going to take time to read it, I will be reading a couple of parables, but not this one. I want to paraphrase it. Some of you will remember it. It's the parable of the laborer in the vineyard. Matthew 20, 1 to 16. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who hired laborers for his vineyard early in the morning. The 12-hour workday, he hires some at 6 in the morning. Goes on to say he hires others at 9 o'clock, others at noon, others at 3 And then one hour before quitting time, five o'clock, he hires some others. At the end of the day, he gives them all what they agreed to work for, one denarius, which in that day was one day's wage. And the ones, as it's portrayed in the parable, the ones who worked the longest and had borne through the, the heat of the day grumble about the unfairness of that. And the landowner who represents God says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Everybody goes to the same heaven, whether you've been saved for 50 years or whether you were saved at the end of your life. Listen to J.C. Ryle. This is a truth which we see illustrated on every side in the church of Christ. As a matter of experience, we see one man called to repentance and faith in the beginning of his days, like Timothy, young Timothy, and laboring in the Lord's vineyard for 40 or 50 years. We see another man called at the 11th hour, like the thief on the cross, and plucked like a brand out of the fire, one day a hard, impenitent sinner, the next day in paradise. 
And yet the whole tenor of the gospel leads us to believe that both these men are equally forgiven before God. Both are equally washed in Christ's blood and clothed in Christ's righteousness. Both are equally justified, both accepted, and both will be found at Christ's right hand in the last day. I said to my 95-year-old father recently, who is still not a believer, I said, Dad, I've been a Christian for over 50 years serving Christ. If you come to Christ at age 95, I will not be one whit jealous, but I will delight in the grace of God that we're both going to the same heaven. So the first point is that there's this equality of the reward of heaven. We're all going to the same heaven, whether you've served Christ for 50 years or whether you're saved on your deathbed. You all get the same reward of heaven. But now the next point, the reality of rewards in heaven. You see the difference here? The reward of heaven. Heaven is a reward to all of us, purchased by Christ, now rewards in heaven. Not only may we speak of heaven being a reward, but the Bible also speaks of rewards in heaven. For example, Jesus in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, he said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you wrongly for my sake. Great is your reward in heaven, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, which I alluded to already this morning, lay up treasure in heaven. It's possible to lay up treasure in heaven. In Mark 9 and verse 41, we have this idea of rewards in heaven. In chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said, Forever gives for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. There are rewards in heaven. In Luke 6, in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So not only is heaven given as a reward to believers, earned by Christ, but scripture teaches that it's possible to lay up treasures in heaven. There there will be rewards in heaven. The next thing we want to see is the variability of rewards in heaven. Not only will believers be given rewards in heaven, but they will not be equally rewarded in heaven. Some will receive more rewards. Some will receive less. And I want to establish that under three lines. First, there are some general statements about rewards being given according to our deeds. Listen to these statements. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will recompense every man according to his deeds. Romans 2, 6, referring to the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Quote, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Revelation 20, 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the final judgment. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is of life, the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Pretty clear, isn't it? that people will be judged according to their deeds. And when we think of that, don't think that we're only going to be judged according to our outward actions and behavior. 
The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. In that day of judgments, God's going to, he's not going to be fooled by any outward pretensions. God's going to look beyond the deeds and he's going to look to the heart. First of all, then he will judge our outward actions. Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. God's mindful of the ministry you've done. He's mindful of the good works you've done. But the Bible teaches that God will also judge us for our words. Matthew 12.36, but I tell you, Jesus said, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give account of it in the day of judgment. We will be judged for our works, we will be judged for our words, and beyond that, we will even be judged for our motives, because God knows our motives. Romans 2.16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you, Corinthians, or any by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. And then he talks about the Lord, when he judges, will disclose the motives of hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. There will be a judgment. We will be judged for our outward actions, judged for our words, and judged even for what God knows, the motives of our hearts. And that's a judgment that believers will undergo as well. This is not just for unbelievers. This is for believers as well. Do you notice the repetition, each man, every man will stand in the judgment? Believers will be in the judgment as well. But here are some explicit statements. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul speaking to Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In Romans 14.10, why do you judge your brother or regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers and believers will all stand in the judgment. Now, in case you're wondering whether Pastor Chuck is a heretic Let's be clear on the fact that that judgment will not determine whether or not you go to heaven. That is settled on earth. When you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven instantly of all of your sins. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That judgment for believers will not be a matter of whether you've done enough to get to heaven or not. You can never do enough to get to heaven. Our trust is in what Jesus has done. and He's done perfectly to get us to heaven. So please understand that that judgment for believers will not determine their standing before God. That is already settled. But there will be a judgment for believers and unbelievers. We have these general truths that we will be judged according to our deeds. But then there are specific statements about the variability of rewards in heaven. In Mark 10.40, and we studied that, James and John, two of the disciples, come up to Jesus and not understanding the nature of the kingdom, obviously, thinking his kingdom was going to be political, earthly. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, may we sit at your right hand and left? Jesus, we want positions of power. We want to be in your cabinet. 
when you come into your kingdom. Obviously, they did not understand the nature of the kingdom, that it was a spiritual kingdom. But listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer in Mark 10.40. He says, But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, there's no right hand or left. There's no positions of honor or eminence in heaven. Everybody's equal. No. He indicates or implies that there will be positions of honor at his right and on his left. But he's saying that's already been fixed. So he's indicating that there will be variability of rewards. But now here's a passage that makes it crystal clear. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. So heaven is a reward. We all get that. We're all equal in that. But there are rewards in heaven. We will be rewarded according to our deeds. And we will not all be rewarded equally. There's a variability in the rewards we receive. 1 Corinthians 3, 8 and following makes it clear. Paul speaking, he says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now that's talking primarily about men who are pastors, preachers, leaders in the church, as Paul was, as Apollos was. Christ is the foundation. Men come along and build on that foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the foundation. Then you have pastors who come. And they build on that foundation. How they build varies. If a man builds well, if he brings the truth of God's word, we could say he's building with gold, silver, precious stones. If a man builds poorly and he doesn't teach the truth of Christ and build well on that foundation, it's wood, hay, and stubble. And in the final day, which I take to be that eschatological day, often referred to as the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, that final day, it will be discovered. Now notice, in this context, all of these workers are saved. But in some cases, their works, wood, hay, and stubble, are burned up. What's the point? They will be saved, but as through fire. Some will receive more rewards than others based on their faithfulness in building upon the foundation. So I'm trying to make the point, the variability of rewards in heaven. This is also indicated by a couple of parables that Jesus told. And I'll turn your attention to Luke 19, one of the parables that I think makes it clear. Luke 19, and we're going to begin at verse 12 and read a few verses. 
Jesus often illustrated the way things are in the kingdom of heaven with stories or parables. And he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with, with this until I come back. And his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Are you to be an authority over 10 cities? The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. God doles out different gifts and opportunities to each of us, like he gave out these, these varying um, minas. Now, in each case, he gave one mina. One man turned it into ten, and he got rewarded tenfold. The other person took his mina and reproduced five. He gets rewarded fivefold. They both started with one mina. One produced ten, the other produced five. And they got rewarded accordingly. Do you see that? That the rewards are determined not based on what they've been given, but what they do with what they have been given. Another parable comes at it from a little bit of a different angle. Turn to Matthew 25. It's the same point, but it's made from a little different angle. Matthew 25, verse 14. There Jesus says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. And then he talks about the one. But when he came back, Verse 20, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. He had five. And he reproduced five. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. They were given different amounts, but they got the same reward because they were equally faithful with what they were given. Make sense? The guy who was given five made five more, rewarded. Guy who was given two made two more, got the same reward. The point is, it's not so much a matter of what God has given to you that determines your reward, but what you do with what God gives. A person may be given great gifts by God, but be really lazy in the use of those gifts. Though given great gifts, his rewards will be little. He may get some burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. 
You may have a person who has meager gifts compared to others, but that person is faithful in doing all he or she can with those gifts and receive a great reward. Let me put it even more graphically. Let's suppose there's an evangelist like a Charles Spurgeon who has won tens of thousands of people to Christ and a pastor who has been influential in the lives of thousands of people that he has edified for decades and prepared them for heaven. Great gifts, great faithfulness. But here is a person who is born with a chronic illness year after year, decade after decade, without complaint. Or a person who has cared day after day, month after month, year after year for a disabled spouse, unseen, unknown, but in God's eye, may be just as faithful and get the same reward as the one who has led tens of thousands to Christ or built up the church for decades. Do you see that? It's not what you've been given. It's what you have done with what you have been given. That determines the variability of the reward. Now, the next point is the impossibility of meritorious rewards in heaven. Here's where some people stumble, and rightly so. They say, now, wait a minute. Heaven is a free gift. The Christian life is all about grace. There's no merit in the Christian life. Aren't we told over and over again that we have nothing to boast of? But if we're saying that heaven's a free gift, but you can earn rewards in heaven, doesn't that give you something to boast about? As a result of that, it has led some people to say there, there must not be any rewards in heaven at all because we have no grounds for boasting. But that doesn't follow because we've clearly seen there are rewards in heaven, right? Can you say amen? Shake your head. There are rewards in heaven and they are variable. How do we square that with grace? Listen to one more passage, Luke 17, 5 to 10. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now listen to this. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has gone in, come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Now listen to the application. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy or unprofitable slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Follow me here. When we have done everything possible in obedience to God, even if your obedience is perfect, have you done over and above so that you deserve to be rewarded? The idea is no. You've only done what is expected of you, right? You're an unprofitable servant. You don't deserve any reward for only doing what is expected of you even when we do everything right. But the reality is, even our best works are tainted with sin. Our 1689 Confession of Faith 
says about our works, they are marred and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they will utter, fail utterly to meet the searching requirements of God's standards. Even if we do the right thing, often we do it with mixed motives and it's not completely pure. The standard of obedience is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of your life and love your neighbor as yourself. None of us can attain to that standard. Here's the point. God is pleased to take even our imperfect works and reward us for them. Though our best deeds are far from perfect, he rewards them in his grace. So we have nothing to boast of. Further, even the ability and power to do those good works comes from God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than all of them. Sounds proud, but he didn't end there. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Jesus' words in John 15, 6, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we will get rewards in heaven, but my point here is they are not meritorious. They are not a grounds for boasting because even those rewards are gifts of God's grace. Because they are far from perfect, they don't really meet his standard, he rewards us anyway. And he rewards us for the very works that we do by his grace alone. And so, you see the impossibility of meritorious rewards in heaven. I've really moved to the next point, the gratuity and the rewards in heaven. They're not meritorious. They're not deserving of rewards, but we're given rewards because God is so gracious that he not only gives us heaven as a reward, he rewards us for doing works that are far from perfect and the very works that he himself enabled us to do. That points to the magnanimity and graciousness of our God. So what have we, where have we come? We've seen, first of all, that heaven itself is a reward and we all receive it equally. But there are rewards in heaven. As we say today, rewards are a thing, right? Rewards are a thing taught in the Bible. We see that rewards in heaven are variable. Some will receive more and some less. Some works will be gold, silver, precious stones. Others, wood, hay, and stubble. Sorry, friend, you might have done the right thing, but you did it from a selfish motive. Wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up. You're saved, but the works don't go with you. And then we see that rewards in heaven are gracious. We will be rewarded, but we'll still have nothing to boast of since the very things we did to receive the rewards were imperfect and they were enabled and empowered by God's grace in us. Now, if we ask, I'm sure this is a question you're asking and I'm not going to satisfy you because I don't know. What are the rewards in heaven, Pastor Chuck? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot. It does seem to indicate that there is um, increased responsibilities in heaven, right? I'll put you over 10 cities, five cities, increased responsibilities. But beyond that, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what those rewards are. But a favorite author of mine, Anthony Hokema, wrote The Bible in the Future, has a helpful insight for us. 
He says, the relation between our works and our future reward ought, however, to be understood not in a mechanical, but rather in an organic way. When one has studied music and has attained some proficiency in playing a musical instrument, his capacity for enjoying music has been greatly increased. In a similar way, our devotion to Christ and to service in his kingdom increases our capacity for enjoying the blessings of that kingdom, both now and in the life to come. Leon Morris, another commentator, puts it aptly. Here and now, the man who gives himself wholeheartedly to the service of Christ and knows more of the joy of the Lord than the half-hearted. I'm sorry, let me... Here and now, the man who gives himself wholeheartedly to the service of Christ knows more of the joy of the Lord than the half-hearted. We have no warrant from the New Testament for thinking that it will be otherwise in heaven. That's probably as close as we can come. Even in this life, some Christians love God more than others. Some know him more than others. You read some of the old saints and you say, oh my, how they knew Christ. How they loved Christ. My faith is so piddling. My love for Christ is so piddling compared to some of these great saints. They loved Christ. They loved God. They enjoyed God more on earth. Is it wrong to suppose that that might carry on into heaven? I'll give you a, a very particular illustration. A few months ago, my wife and I were invited to go to a concert where David Kim, the violinist, was performing in concert. He is the concert master for the Philadelphia Orchestra. He happens also to be a Christian. And he's a superb violinist. I enjoyed that concert. I didn't have a twinge of pain. It was thoroughly enjoyable to me. But if you talk to my wife, it was ecstatic for her. She was following every note, every bowstroke of this superb violinist and enjoying it immensely more than me. In fact, afterwards, she said he, he made five mistakes. Five mistakes. You put a gun to my head and say, point out a, a wrong note he made. I'm sorry, pull the trigger. I didn't hear any wrong note. But her ear is finely tuned that she, she wasn't criticizing. I mean, he's superb. Every performer makes mistakes, but wow. And that is maybe the best we can come. Right now, the more we know and love God and enjoy him, it's going to vary. And might that not be true in heaven? Nobody's going to suffer in heaven. It's going to be pure bliss for everybody. But some may enjoy him more fully then, even as they do now. I'm thankful that a commentator says it because that's perhaps as close as we can come to understanding heaven, even though a lot of it is veiled to our understanding. Well, let me wrap it up with some applications, which could be a sixth point if you want it, the practicality of rewards in heaven. Um, what effect should this teaching about rewards in heaven have on our thinking and our living? This teaching about rewards in heaven, first of all, should not unsettle your confidence in salvation by the grace of God. Some of you have a very scrupulous, maybe over-scrupulous conscience. And the very fact that I've talked about rewards in heaven is getting you scrambling, saying, oh, I hope I've, I've done enough. I hope, I... look, you will never do enough to earn heaven. Jesus did it all. He earned it. Don't let this teaching about rewards in any way unsettle your confidence that salvation is by the free grace of God alone, okay? 
That would not be, I would be grieved if you came away with that unsettledness. No, if your trust is in Jesus, you're forgiven, and there's no condemnation now and into eternity for you. Secondly, the teaching about rewards should do nothing to give you any grounds for boasting in your good deeds. Is it true that some will receive more rewards than others? Yeah, it's patently true. But if your disposition is anything other than these verses that I'm going to quote, you're missing something. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. I worked harder than all of them, yet not me, but the grace of God with me. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you haven't received? If you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The fact that we do works that will be rewarded in heaven gives us no grounds for boasting. I hope your disposition lines up with those scriptures. That if there's anything good that I ever do, any words that I speak that are ever of any value, apart from him I can do nothing. It is only his grace working in me. And I have nothing to boast of. Nothing except to boast in glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this teaching about rewards should do nothing to give you any grounds for boasting of your good deeds. Thirdly, this teaching about rewards gives us plenty of reason to praise our God of grace. God is so gracious, so magnanimous, so large-hearted that not only will he give you heaven as a gift, but he'll actually reward your very imperfect works in heaven, the very works that he empowers you to do. He'll turn around and reward you for them. Surely we should say with the hymn writer, redeeming grace has been my theme and shall be till I die. There's only one theme that characterizes our life, redeeming grace, grace, grace. That's why we sang about grace this morning. But then fourth and finally, this teaching about rewards should give us motivation for holy living. Motivation is multifaceted. Our chief motivation for obeying God and living for God should not be rewards. It should be, we should be motivated by grateful love for our gracious and loving Savior. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why do we keep his commandments? Because we love him. Romans 12, 1, therefore I urge you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why do we present our whole selves to God in service for him? Because of his mercy and our gratitude to him for his mercy and grace. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us that we no longer live for ourselves. Why do we serve him? Because of his great love for us. Those are the primary motivations. But motivation is multifaceted. It's not wrong for you and me to have as a motivation to lay up treasures in heaven and to be rewarded in heaven. I mean, Jesus tells us, lay up treasure in heaven. Paul says, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is what? A crown of righteousness for me, which he will award to me and all who love his appearing. He was looking forward to that crown of righteousness. In Philippians 2, 14 to 16, the apostle Paul indicates a, a similar sentiment when he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse world 
uh, generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Listen as we draw to a close to another quote from Hokema 258 and 259 in his book, where he says, It is sometimes said that the sins of believers which God has pardoned, blotted out, and cast into the sea of forgetfulness will not be mentioned on the day of judgment. If it be true, however, that there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, and that the judgment will concern itself with all our deeds, words, and thoughts, surely the sins of believers will also be revealed on that day. In fact, if it is true that even the best works of believers are polluted with sin, and he gives quotes, how can any deeds of believers be brought into an open without some recognition of sin and imperfections. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, which we read that some believers build on the foundation of faith in Christ with inferior materials like wood, hay, and stubble. These will be saved, but yet they will suffer loss. The failures and shortcomings of such believers, therefore, will enter into the picture on the day of judgment. But, and this is the important point, the sins and shortcomings of believers will be revealed in the judgment as forgiven sins, whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as was said, believers have nothing to fear from the judgment, though the realization that they will have to give an account of everything they have done, said, and thought should be for them a constant incentive to diligent fighting against sin, conscientious Christian service, and consecrated living. You see the balance? You have nothing to fear because all your sins are forgiven, but the fact that I'm going to stand in judgment for my, my deeds and my words and my thoughts ought to be an incentive to me to press on toward holiness. Peter, in his second Peter, talks about making an abundant entrance into heaven. John Bunyan talks about, is it Mr. Ready to Halt? The guy who makes it to heaven, but he hobbles in on crutches. My desire for myself and for you is that we not hobble in on crutches, but we make an abundant entrance into heaven by having lives that are filled with good works from good motives, good words spoken with good will, done in his name, done in, by his power, that we all might receive the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, insofar as I have rightly represented your truth about rewards, Seal these truths to our hearts. If in anything I have erred, please bring correction. Please bring, on the one hand, the assurance that all of our sins are forgiven in your Son. And yet also, Lord, may this be a spur to us not to be careless, not to lay up treasure on earth and not in heaven, and not to face that day with our works being wood, hay, and stubble. But may they be gold, silver, and precious stones by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name.